0: Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 147 of Just the Zoo of Us. Before we dive right in, I just have a super quick but very exciting update to announce, and that is that episode transcripts are back. Our friend Liv Schaup has joined us as our transcriber, so his transcripts are done, they will be posted on our website at justthezooofus.com slash transcripts. And they'll also be linked in episode descriptions as soon as they are available. This is a major accessibility improvement that has long been at the top of our goal list. And we're finally able to afford making it happen thanks to the support of Max Fund members. So thank you all for that. Now on to our episode. This week we have an entomologist here to talk about a family of fascinating bugs that are always one slow methodical step ahead of the competition, assassin bugs. We discuss why their bite packs such a powerful punch, how they're able to outsmart both predators and prey with downright Machiavellian tactics like corpse armor and spawn camping and trap setting and what Wonders you'll find when you take a minute to just stoop down and appreciate the intricacies of insects. This episode is pretty long, but trust the process because it is jam-packed with just mind-blowing revelations about the cutthroat world of bugs. Just the Zoo of Us presents Assassin Bugs with Ilan Domnich. it is ellen weatherford i'm here with just the zoo of us your favorite animal review podcast and this week i'm really excited to talk about a bug that i'm like only a little bit familiar with so i'm ready to learn uh we're joined today by ilan domnich say hi ilan hi everyone It is so good to hear from you. For some people listening, if you also listen to the podcast Beyond Blathers, this might not be their first time hearing your voice. We have some mutual friends.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here.
0: You were on Beyond Blathers. Which episode was it? Did you do phasmids?
1: Yes, stick insects.
0: Oh, yes. It was a minute ago, but it was delightful. And you're friends with our buddies over at Beyond Blathers, right?
1: Indeed, yeah. Me and uh, Olivia De Bercier, one of the hosts of Beyond Blathers, we actually volunteered together at the Royal Alberta Museum Bug Gallery for, I think, over a year now, and so we're we're still in touch. We go rock climbing together once in a while.
0: Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> I love her, and I love their show so much. So I'm so excited that our worlds get to collide again. Mm-hmm. What has your journey been like that brought you to working with and studying bugs? What has your bug adventure been like?
1: So ever since I was a little kid, before I can even remember, I've been interested in animals. And as a little kid, you know, out playing in the dirt, what I saw the most of was insects and other bugs like spiders and stuff. Spiders have always made me a little bit uncomfortable. I think I have some deep-rooted arachnophobia that I'm kind of working through. But they're, you know what, they're so interesting that, like, I love reading about them. I love learning about them. And I love seeing them when they're behind glass. Uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's relatable, I think.
1: Yeah. But so growing up, I've always loved all animals. It started with kind of insects and dinosaurs, too, because what kid doesn't love dinosaurs? And then as I grew, my kind of favorite animals changed with me. So it started with like dinosaurs and then fish and then reptiles. And then I had a period where I really loved birds. I was never really a mammal person. They're too familiar. They're too much like me.
0: Mm-hmm. I see an animal every day when I look in the mirror. Like yeah. show me something
1: I don't know. Right? So I've always loved kind of the quirky, weird animals. And insects, I think, are by far some of the weirdest I like to say that I study insects because it's the closest I can get to studying aliens.
0: Yes. So often you see a bug and you're like, you didn't come from this earth.
1: (laughs) And you know what? So often you see an alien in a movie and you're like, that just looks like a praying mantis. That's just a bug.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Try harder. (laughs) I did feel that way when I saw, uh, what was that movie? Arrival? which is like one of my favorite movies I've ever seen in my life. And mm-hmm. the aliens in Arrival definitely looked just like a big fin squid. And I yeah. was like, that's just, that's a thing I already know about. Yeah,
1: And <laughs> same with like uh, District 9, Ender's oh, Game. They had just insects as aliens. <laughs>
0: You're like, that's just a bug.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I like seeing it, but I do wish they were a little bit more outside the box.
0: Hmm. I suppose art does imitate life though.
1: Yeah. That being said, there's a really great channel on YouTube called Curiosity Archives that does a whole bunch of, it's called speculative biology. So when they're like making up animals that would live on alien planets, or for instance, maybe like 100 million years in the future on earth, what would animals look like? And I love it. It's so interesting. (laughs) And I'm like, these people are way more creative. And you see it a lot more in video games, too. You see a lot of really creative designs. And then once you get to mainstream media, I feel like that creativity kind of topples out and they go for something that's going to be more familiar to people.
0: Sure. That reminds me of um, the game No Man's Sky, where all of the alien life is like, procedurally generated oh. so everything is just like as you're discovering it the game is inventing it by like wow. taking a whole like random traits and throwing them all together in one animal so you get just some absolutely bonkers looking creatures
1: did you ever play spore
0: i love spore <laughs> i i think referencing spore is on the just the zoo of us bingo card yeah. I loved Spore as a kid. And yes, throwing whatever absolutely wild adaptations you can come up with onto this creature and being like, here you go, best of luck. (laughs) Yep, and somehow it works. I mean, I feel like that's what bugs are doing.
1: Like, I always loved all insects and all animals in general. And insects always kind of stood out to me as the weirdest of the weird. There's a lot going on in the ocean that's also very weird, but I think it's a little harder to access. It's not something you can just go out and see, you really have to be in the right area and have the right equipment to see the things in the ocean. Whereas insects, you go out into your garden, into the forest in a park, they're everywhere. And all you need to do is just look a little bit closer and you realize how weird and interesting they are. And so like some of the things that just kind of astounded me about insects is how different they're built from us. Like they are completely different. The way they breathe is completely different from us. Uh, The way their eyes work is different. You know, you look at an insect and they have these compound eyes. And so they're inherently built completely different than we are. Even the way they smell and hear things, you know, they don't have a nose. They smell using their antennae and they use those antennae to hear at the same time. So um, or they'll use their whole body to feel vibrations and hear. They even taste with not just their mouth, but with other parts of their body, like their feet. Or a lot of insects will also have taste receptors on their ovipositor, which is the egg laying organ on female insects. And so that way they can like taste the substrate and know where to lay their eggs.
0: So it's less of like a, when humans use taste to determine like, is this a good thing to eat or not? They're like using taste for more than that, it sounds like.
1: Totally. And everything you learn about them, you're like, well, this is completely unexpected and isn't (laughs) at all how it works in mammals. Right. So I just love that. No matter what, there's always more to learn about insects. And that's part of the thing that attracted me to them. I'm like, I could learn about them for my entire life and still not even know, you know, hundredth of the information that's out there. Yeah. And there's always new species to be discovered. I heard a quote where: so there's about one million species of insects that we know of. And there's another between one to six million waiting to be discovered. So that means that less than half of all insects have even been found by people. You can go in the Amazon rainforest with a little vial, catch a random bug, and it's probably a new species.
0: <laughs> you could be the first human being to ever, like, lay eyes on that species.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that happens every year. They're describing new species of insects, and you don't get that with vertebrates. With vertebrates, like, maybe every couple years you'll find a new species. And that's that's just something I love about it, is that mystery will never really be, go away. Right. I've always been passionate about animals and never really knew what I wanted to study specifically. Then I was doing my first degree is actually a business degree. So I did a finance degree at the University of Alberta, and I took an entomology class about insects. And... I just fell in love. I was like, these are the coolest things. I love learning about them because every single thing i learn is something I didn't know before. Right. I didn't realize how much I didn't know until I actually started learning about them. It's funny, the professor who taught me that class is now my supervisor for my master's degree. And so after that, I kind of switched. I finished that degree. And then I kind of was like, you know what? I want to do something more for myself, for my own interest and not just for my own kind of economic stability. And so I'm gonna go into biology. Now I'm a master's student in Dr. Maya Evenden's lab, an entomology lab at the University of Alberta. I also worked with her for a while on the BUGS 101 massive open online course. So that's on Coursera.org. I'll talk about that more later maybe. Um, So I'm one of the instructors for that. And then I've also been a long-term volunteer at the Royal Alberta Museum in the Bug Gallery there. If you live in Alberta, in Canada, and you have not been there, it is amazing. It's in Edmonton, and we have a, one of the biggest collections of live insects in all of North America. So I feel really lucky to have been able to volunteer there for more than eight years now. So I just wow. don't believe. I love it.
0: <laughs> They're stuck with you, huh?
1: Yeah. (laughs) I uh, also like to do a lot of animal art. So I like to draw and I also make entomology art, uh, which I can talk about a little bit more later. So that's kind of been my journey right now. And I just have kind of fallen into insects because I want to learn about something where I will never stop learning.
0: I also, you know, something that you mentioned about the sense of you start to learn about bugs and then you start to realize how much you didn't know about bugs. Mm -hmm. I do feel like there's a little bit of like an educational gap with bugs where like, it's not to say that like there's not information out there or educational materials out there, but like, I don't know if it's just that people don't seek that sort of educational material out, but like what the average person knows like if you were to approach a person off the street and ask them what they knew you know about bugs or insects or anything like that it's really nothing Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's usually pretty much nothing which is like kind of where i came from coming into this like i really didn't know very much about bugs at all you know and Mm -hmm. just over the years of making the podcast have kind of learned a little bit here and there and it's consistently mind-blowing
1: And you know what, Ellen, I think you hit the nail on the head there when you said that people don't seek that information out
0: Mm -hmm. because
1: people see, you know, a panda and they're like, oh my God, it's so cute. Tell me more about it. But they rarely kind of get that reaction with bugs. And Mm -hmm. that's part of what I love about my work is especially just like volunteering at the museum. I get to talk to kids all the time and that they're in that point, especially when they're kind of between like five to 10 years old, where they're not necessarily grossed out by them like a lot of adults are they're just curious and mm-hmm. i'm like yes okay i'm going to foster that curiosity by the end of our conversation you're going to love this bug and you're going to want to know more about it and that's always kind of my goal and i do a lot of presentations at uh, public schools here in edmonton and that's kind of what i really like to emphasize is these are really interesting creatures and they're they deserve your attention just as much as these big charismatic fauna
0: but also invertebrates are experiencing the same like species decline and they're part of the biodiversity crisis too. So like, if you want to get the whole picture of what's really going on with the zoomed out context of like the environment that you're in, you need to think about your bugs too.
1: Totally. And in a lot of cases, they're such an important part of the food web. They're food for a lot of other animals and they can even be really great indicators of ecosystem health. For instance, uh, freshwater insects, are often used to assess the health of a water body. Because depending on which insects are found in that water body, that can tell you how polluted it is, how much oxygen is in there, how healthy is this water body. And so uh, they can also be used as kind of indicators of ecosystem health in a really easy way because you have so many of them. It's not just like, oh, OK, we found one duck here, so this must, this water body must be OK. It's like mm-hmm. we're surveying for maybe hundreds of different insects and it can tell you so much more information.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Something that I like to try to do intentionally on the podcast is to give the spotlight to bugs, especially when they're like kind of funky, very interesting, like bugs that are maybe a little bizarre. So there's a lot to talk about there, but also like once you really get into it, you're like, wow, this is actually fascinating, which I'm really hoping we can get into with our bug today. For people who might be listening and they're like, I don't know what an assassin bug is. What's an assassin bug?
1: Okay, so assassin bugs are insects. Insects have six legs. Bug is really a term we use for like arthropods most of the time.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm a bug anarchist. I'll call anything (laughs) a bug. I don't care.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, in comparison to something like arachnids, where they have eight legs, centipedes and millipedes have tons of legs. Insects have six legs, and that's a great way to kind of differentiate them from the rest of the group. So, if you're ever unsure of whether something is an insect, Count the number of legs. This can get weird because caterpillars also have things called prolegs where they're just like extra little, they're called prolegs because they're not real legs. They don't have joints like other legs. They're just kind of extensions of their body wall that are able to grip and grab onto things. But they're not as complex as the legs are. So they're not true legs.
0: Wow, I'd never heard of that before. But now that you say that, that makes sense, right? Because they're insects, but they have a bunch of legs, fake legs. Yeah,
1: and they're, they're not the only ones that have these fake legs, the pro legs. So you do see it in some other groups as well. But the other unique thing about insects compared to other invertebrates or other bugs is they have wings. So insects will have two pairs of wings, a front pair and a back pair. And in a lot of insects, these might be modified. Like in beetles, they form the shell. And so they only have the one pair of wings. And in flies, the hind wings are modified into sensory organs. And so they only have the one pair. And then in fleas and other insects, they've completely lost their wings. But in general, you can say that insects also have wings and they are in fact the first animals that ever evolved flight like 450 million years ago or something like that.
0: Before birds, before dinosaurs.
1: Yep, before bats. And that's all the four groups <laughs> well, actually, the <laughs> are technically not dinosaurs, but, but you get, you get the picture.
0: I know we had, to, we had to get the dinosaur nerd out for a second. Like, put the yes. dinosaur nerd hat on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I'm taking it back off. Uh, <laughs> so, assassin bugs are insects that are in the order Hemiptera, hemi meaning half, like a hemisphere. Ptera means wing, like pterodactyl means wing finger. So, that's where the name comes from. And that's because their wings are half-hardened. So unlike a beetle, where the front pair of wings is completely hard and stiff and made into this hard shell, their wings are kind of like a half shell. They offer some protection, but they're not as clunky as the beetle's shell, where it's kind of blocking their wings from flapping and makes them worse at flying. Um, so it's kind of the middle ground. Uh, you guys actually talked about some other hemipterans on your podcast. So one was backswimmers, uh, which yeah. are closely related to assassin bugs in the sense that they have that kind of characteristic half wing, Um, it looks like they have an X shape on their back. And that's how you can differentiate them from something like a beetle, where the beetles have a line going straight down their back where their shell separates. In the Hemiptera, the wings overlap and form an X shape.
0: Oh, I'll have to keep an eye out for that.
1: yeah. The other group you guys talked about were cicadas, which do not have those kind of hardened half wings. They just have normal, typical bug wings and kind of like aphids are also in this group and they also just have typical membranous wings. But what all of the hemipterans do have in common is not their wings, but actually their mouth parts. So they all have a straw-like proboscis that pierces tissue to suck out the liquid contents. So they only eat liquid stuff. They can't eat solid food. They literally can't chew. They don't have the parts for it.
0: So they're sticking a straw in a Capri Sun.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and that Capri Sun might be a plant. Most hemipterans feed on plants like cicadas and aphids. However, a lot of them will feed on other animals, in particular other insects. And so these predatory ones, a lot of them fall into the assassin bug family, which is called Reduviidae. So it's got two eyes in there next to each other,
0: Ooh, I love a scientific name with two eyes in it. You know what? You see them a lot
1: in insects for some reason. And I didn't really know how to pronounce it at first. So you pronounce the first one as E and the next one as I. Oh, sure. So both okay, the sounds sure. that an I make.
0: Eid. Yeah. I'm going to keep that in mind next time I come across one. Usually I come across, I'm like, I'm just not going to say that.
1: And that's fair. It's a de- Latin's a dead language, right? So <laughs> who re- who's really to say? So they're in the family Reduvia de, which is the assassin bugs. And this family is entirely predatory. There are other predatory hemipterans, like the back swimmers, for instance, are predatory as well, but they're in a different family. Uh, And so they will use their proboscis to pierce animal tissue, which is usually other arthropods, insects, maybe spiders. And this kind of straw-like proboscis, it's kind of delicate, so it has a protective sheath. And then inside this sheath, which is what you see when you look at the bug, you see the sheath around the proboscis. And inside are these tiny little things called stylets, which are basically flexible needles. So they're like hollow hypodermic needles that though, that's actually what's going into their prey. Um, And the proboscis is really just to keep it safe and kind of tucked underneath their bodies when they're not using it. This is actually where the assassin bugs get their name is because they use their proboscis to stab prey like an assassin might you know, stab someone.
0: Sure, and then and then sheath it away, and then be like, "Yeah." I, I think of like in Assassin's Creed, how the guy has like the little dagger on his hand, and he like stab somebody, and then like retract it back into his hand.
1: Totally, except that dagger is your mouth.
0: That's a little bit more of an unsettling uh, mental image. <laughs> if if there was an Assassin Bugs Creed, <laughs> where <laughs> he's <laughs> you have to like sneak through the crowd and sneak up on your target, and then like stab them with your
1: mouth. Oh my God. I would play that game. So the assassin bugs are made up of about 7,000 species in this group. Now... When you're talking about mammals, seven thousand species—that's like all mammals, For Sure, basically. yeah. <laughs> so that's—it's a lot of diversity, and that's just within one family. So it just kind of goes to show how much diversity there is in the insect world. So to describe them a little bit, what they look like—they're usually pretty small, anywhere between one to four centimeters so usually less than two inches, and they live about one year usually, so they're not super long lived, but that's pretty typical of most insects, right? They usually only live maybe a few months to a year, depending on where they live.
0: Here for a good time, not a long time.
1: Yeah, that's not to say some insects can't live a long time. Some ant queens, I think it's pharaoh ants, the queens will live 23 years, is I think the longest, so quite a long time, and there's even some spiders that are thought to live more than 50 years. Whoa. So just because you're small doesn't mean you can't be long-lived. It's just that most of them aren't. <laughs> and so they look, it's hard to explain exactly what they look like, but if anyone's familiar with a stink bug, that one I think is an insect. It is a hemipteran, and that's one I think a lot more people know of. But it's like you took a stink bug and you stretched it out.
0: Like long ways.
1: Yeah, like you put it on that medieval torture rack and you just stretched it.
0: <laughs> it's a hot dog style stink bug. <laughs>
1: Totally. You folded it hot dog style. So they're basically like a stink bug that's longer. And then they have this big proboscis that's underneath these big kind of bulgy eyes. And then their wings will fold over their flat over their back and kind of overlap to make this X shape. So that's the adults because only adult insects have wings. And the adults are often aposomatically colored. So they're often brightly colored. This kind of warning coloration to warn predators, don't mess with me. Maybe I'm a little bit dangerous. But the nymphs, on the other hand, so uh, their juveniles are called nymphs instead of larvae. Which is
0: such a delightful way to describe anything. Nymph is like one of the most beautiful words in the English language. So I'm so glad they're called nymphs.
1: It makes them sound so much cuter.
0: It's so whimsical. Yes. (laughs) It's a cottagecore bug.
1: (laughs) So we call them nymphs because they don't go through a complete metamorphosis. They don't have the severe change in body form like a caterpillar to a butterfly. Instead, the juveniles look and act very similar to the adults. We see the same things in other groups like grasshoppers, where if you've ever seen a baby grasshopper, it's basically just a cute little version of the adult. And the only real difference is that they don't have wings or functional reproductive organs. Now, with assassin bugs, the nymphs actually look very different from the adults. And that's because the nymphs employ camouflage, and you don't see that in the adults. So the nymphs are often kind of in stealth mode all the time. And I'm going to talk a lot about how they do this, because this is one of their neatest features. Um, So I don't want to spoil it right now. Okay. Just kind of keep in mind. So the nymphs are more camouflaged. They're often muted colors, grays and browns. The adults, on the other hand, are brightly colored, and that's because they can't really do camouflage very well because they have wings, and it's very hard to camouflage when you need these kind of large, flat organs that, you know, the wings need to be a certain way for them to fly. You can't just cover them in all sorts of modifications to camouflage them or else they might not work anymore. So the adults have kind of foregone that camouflage and gone the complete opposite direction, and now they're brightly colored. So this uh, bright warning coloration, it's not just a scare tactic that is, you know, all bark and no bite like you see in a lot of uh, mimics. So there's a lot of flies that will mimic wasps and the flies are actually completely harmless. They're just trying to, you know, trick the predator. It's a bluff. Yeah. In their case, it is not a bluff. Oh, boy. So (laughs) they can deliver a really painful bite. And that's because when they bite you, they're actually injecting you with the same thing that they inject into their prey, which is their saliva. Their saliva is acidic, so it's digestive. And when they bite you, they're digesting you. And that's why it hurts so much.
0: Oh, so is is this the same thing as a venom or is it considered something else?
1: Uh, It's similar to a venom. You can call it venomous saliva. It's also digestive, so it's kind of like it fulfills multiple functions. So it's a venom... It's a digestive enzyme and it's saliva. It's just like um, a corrosive thing. Yes, all in one.
0: <laughs> a multifunctional saliva.
1: Yeah, and it is very functional. So it can cause a lot of pain to something as large as a human, you know, thousands, maybe millions of times larger than it. And then it can also kill creatures much larger than itself. So maybe a larger insect or a larger spider. It wouldn't kill something like a bird, Uh, just like one assassin bug, but it would cause a lot of pain and that bird would think twice next time it came across one. So, you know, you might think, oh, I I I need to be scared of them and I should worry about them. They don't want anything to do with you for the most part. They're just going to run away from you, fly away from you, get away as fast as possible if they think you're bothering them. Um, It's only if you actually grab it that they might bite you. Right. So they're not like bees or wasps where they're defending a colony. And so maybe they might sting you just because you're close to their colony or something like that. No, these guys are independent. They just want to be left alone. They're not going to bite you. I've never known anyone who's been bitten by an assassin bug. And we actually have them at the museum and keep them in a cage with like tons of them in there. And nobody's ever been bitten. So
0: Mm.
1: now they get kind of a bad reputation because of this painful bite. But the thing is, because they're predators, they're really beneficial to have in the ecosystem. They keep pest populations at bay. So if you're a gardener, especially, you would love these guys because they are eating aphids, they're eating pest caterpillars, lots of things that might eat your plants. And so farmers also love these guys because they're eating pests in the field. And if you do find them in your house, and if you ever have other insects in your house, they'll eat those. So if you get like roaches or bed bugs, God forbid, they will eat those. Um, if you do want to remove them from your house and you're worried about touching them, just do the cup method. You put a cup over top of it, slip a piece of paper underneath, put it outside, uh, and then let it do its work in the garden.
0: I'm glad that you said that because just before you got in touch with me about you know coming on and talking about assassin bugs, we found a wheel bug in mm-hmm. our backyard, which is a type of assassin bug. It's huge, enormous, massive bug, and which was how I noticed it, right? And it was just kind of calmly walking along the bench on our back patio, and I knew what it was right away because I have a very distinct body shape, unmistakable for anything else. And I also knew, like you said, they have a reputation for having a very nasty bite. Uh, So I knew to stay very far away from it. And I got my phone and I zoomed in as far as I could on it to get a nice picture and video of it. And, you know, I was like, you know, they're, yes, they can bite, but I didn't wanna like get rid of it, right? Cause we have so many bugs around. I was like, I wanna keep this bug around to eat our bugs. And so what I ended up doing was I sent a picture of the bug to my neighbors on either side. I said, hey, y'all, I saw this bug don't touch it. Don't get close to it. They have kids and pets and stuff, right? So I was like, you know, keep an eye on your kids, make sure your kid's not grabbing it. But I also was like, they will eat our mosquitoes, leave our bug alone, let him do his thing. Just basically giving people a heads up to keep an eye out for this bug so that their kids weren't grabbing it and getting bitten. But it was so cool. (laughs) It was
1: the coolest thing. Well, that's, that's so great. I'm so glad that you reached out to your neighbors and just you know, insured this bug would continue to live its life.
0: I had to advocate for my bug friend.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm sure they appreciate it. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. He was beautiful. Gorgeous bug. Like I said, they're not aggressive, so you can get really close to them. They're not strong flyers, so they're not going to fly at you or anything like that. They're just going to try to keep walking away. They don't even really run. Like, yeah. they are not fast, <laughs>
0: I loved the way his little legs were moving. They were so slow and like methodical. I feel like there's a movie I've seen that maybe you know what I'm talking about where there was some sort of hydraulic like spider machine that was crawling around on hydraulics. I'll probably remember it later and have to edit in the title. Hello, it is me editing this episode. The movie I was thinking of was Wild Wild West, a steampunk Western that came out in 1999 starring Will Smith and Kevin Kline. Will Smith turned down the role of Neo in The Matrix in favor of Wild Wild West, which was an infamous flop. Rotten Tomatoes' Tomatometer reports a score of 16%. It was a terrible movie, but spoiler alert, there was a giant mechanical spider. Mystery solved. Back to the episode. But it looked like a little hydraulic robot crawling around.
1: Yeah. And you know, it is methodical in the way even that it crawls. And I actually have a point about that in Ingenuity. Oh, good, good, good. good. (laughs) We'll talk more about that later.
0: Absolutely. So if this is your first time ever listening to this podcast, what we do is we rate animals out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity and aesthetics. So first up is effectiveness. This is physical adaptations. These are tools that the animal has built into their body that let them do a good job of the things they're trying to do. So this is a predator. So ways that they are catching their prey, eating their prey, things that they have that allow them to avoid becoming prey themselves. Uh, What do you give assassin bugs out of 10 for effectiveness?
1: So for effectiveness for assassin bugs, this is something I had to think long and hard about. I really want to try to be as objective as possible. So for them, I have given them an effectiveness score of 9 out of 10. Beautiful. So pretty good. Not perfect. So insects in general... Super successful, right? So many species, such high numbers, and they can live almost anywhere. So that alone tells you they're effective. They're doing a good job at what they do.
0: And they've been doing it the longest.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. So I've got a few points here for kind of points for them. And then I'll tell you why I deducted a point. Uh, And I can only deduct one because I want it to be fair to these guys. So the first thing I want to talk about is their bite. So they have this really strong venomous digestive saliva that they use to kill their prey. So they'll find their prey item, stick them with the proboscis, inject their saliva, and the saliva actually digests the inside of their prey. So spiders do something similar. When they bite their prey, they liquefy the inside so that they can suck out um, all the liquefied contents. And basically all that's left is a husk of the insect. But like I mentioned before, this saliva also causes pain when it's injected into a larger animal. Um, So the saliva will kill its prey, but at the same time it can also be used as a defensive mechanism. So that's really effective. You know, you can scare off animals Big enough, like so much bigger than yourself. But it also makes them really, really effective hunters. So they can capture and kill prey up to 10 times their body size. So it's like a single lion taking down an elephant or something. It's (laughs) pretty amazing. And maybe if that lion had a venomous bite, it could.
0: They should invest in some venom. (laughs) Yes. They should take that feat at their next level up.
1: (laughs) The other thing is not just the fact that the venom is really strong, but the way they administer it. So, because they have this kind of proboscis with these small hypodermic needles inside, they can eat insects with really hard exoskeletons, like even a beetle. And that's because they only—they don't need to pierce through that shell. All they need is a tiny, tiny little portion, say a soft portion where the joints meet, and the, mm. and the exoskeleton's a lot thinner there. They can kind of just weasel their little uh, their little proboscis into that point and kind of use that part as access to the inside and inject their venom and then suck out the contents through that little tiny part. So they don't need to chew something, which means they're not worried about things like hard shells, spines. They kind of just get their proboscis into a tiny little soft part and they can access, you know, the insides that way.
0: Is it difficult for them to kind of like it seems like it would be kind of like threading a needle, you know, like having to get a small proboscis into like a small part on a small bug. Like, is that difficult for them?
1: Well, fortunately, bugs have a lot of joints.
0: Oh, sure. More than you and I.
1: (laughs) So even if you just like look at one of their legs, they have so many different joints there. And then in between all of the, they're called sclerites, in between all of the little segments on their body, there's kind of a a thinner area there. So there's lots of different areas that they can access, but they definitely do have kind of favorite areas that they target, like behind the head seems to be a big one. Mm. Um, Kind of like the neck region of an insect is also a little bit more flexible, you know, to allow the head to move a little bit more. And so... I don't think it's that hard for them to find something to access. And then also not all insects have really hard bodies like crickets, flies, and other flying insects tend to have a little bit softer bodies and then they can just pierce right through any part of it. Same with like spiders, their exoskeleton isn't super tough. And so they have no problem getting through it. Cause like I said, it's like a hypodermic needle. It's a very small, sharp needle. And so it can kind of get through quite thick tissue. Now, This venomous saliva isn't just useful for, you know, killing their prey and biting uh, would-be predators. The predator, in some cases, doesn't even have to get close. There are some species of assassin bugs that if you get too close and you kind of, um, you know, are bothering the insect, they can actually eject their saliva onto that predator. They're
0: spitting on you.
1: (laughs) They, They are. They're spitting on you. And They won't really do this to someone if they just get close, but certainly maybe if you start poking them or something, and like I said, it's only some species, they can just spit their uh, saliva onto you, their venomous saliva, and so that way they don't even have to get close to you. And they can, you know, aim for your eyes (gasps) and maybe like aim for areas that are more sensitive.
0: We've got ranged attacks now, baby.
1: (laughs) Exactly, so they have (laughs) melee and ranged attacks. So they're pretty effective at using their saliva in multiple different ways. So the other one I kind of talked about a little bit is their camouflage. They are able to produce a sticky secretion that basically when it comes out, it comes out as like these fine threads and they'll entangle whatever stuff gets on them. So they will actually, their hind legs have like little shovels on their on their feet, basically, and they can just shovel like dirt and dust and stuff onto their backs, get it stuck all over their bodies. And that way, they don't need to worry about mismatching their environment, they camouflage themselves with their environment. So you know, like a lot of moths are camouflaged, but if that moth lands on the wrong tree, now it's going to stand out. Right? Oh, right, right, right. So like if it's a white moth, it camouflages on poplar, but it gets onto, say, an oak tree and now that moth is standing out. So a lot of insects employ camouflage, but this is a better way to do it, is actually taking what's around you wherever you are. And that way, no matter where you are, you'll be camouflaged.
0: Sure. It's more like responsive to your environment.
1: Exactly. And then not only that, but the adults employ that aposematic warning coloration And so a lot of predators won't even get close to them because they know bright colors, probably something I shouldn't mess with.
0: And in this case, very much accurately so.
1: (laughs) Yes. Um, A few other things I want to mention for effectiveness. So like most insects, they have the ability to fly. Never underestimate the ability to fly. So (laughs) useful.
0: (laughs) Every day I find myself thinking, boy, would it be nice if I could just take off into the sky right here yes. now.
1: <laughs> and obviously flight is super useful when you're out in nature. It enables you to escape from predators much quicker, um, maybe unless that predator's a bird.
0: Then they're like, aha, you're in my territory now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> then it's not doing much, but uh, they can fl- fly away from any ground dwelling predators Flight also enables them to disperse much larger distances, find food sources from much farther away, or mates as well, so they can travel much easier. It's a lot faster than walking. It's more taxing energetically, but you know we all have limited time on this earth, and so we have to use that effectively too, even if it takes a little more effort. And they can also fold their wings, which some insects can't do, like dragonflies, for instance, can't fold their wings. That means a dragonfly can't really hide. It can't crawl into a tight space to escape from predators. It is left out in the open. Whereas these guys, like many insects, can fold their wings so they can fit into tight spaces and little nooks and crannies to hide away from predators.
0: I would imagine that would also make it less likely that something would tear through their wings, right? Like if, if a dragonfly has their wings out all the time that's a lot of opportunities for something to like their wings to get damaged. And then what are you going to
1: do then? Totally. Even the rain, if it's hard enough rain could damage a uh, dragonfly's wings. And so that protection uh, isn't just from predators, but also just kind of overall damage as well. And then the wings underneath the uh, they're called hemelytra; those half hardened front pair of wings, the wings underneath are actually folded up and much, much larger and they fold in kind of like a fan and they'll kind of open them up uh, and spread them out in order to fly. And so those front pair of wings are also protecting the delicate hind wings that are underneath and not just the abdomen. So the reason I did deduct a point. So they're clearly very effective predators. They have methods to evade predators. However, they're not perfect one thing is that they're small, right? So being small can be beneficial. You know, you don't need as much food. You can hide in tight spaces. But it also comes at some cost because you're basically prey for anything.
0: If it's bigger than you, which I mean, a lot of things are. Exactly. (laughs) I was going to say most things are, but like considering that they're a little bit on the big side for a bug, maybe? But basically any
1: vertebrate is bigger than you. (laughs) And so... Pretty much any bird or rodent or whatever can eat them if they're not put off by their kind of warning coloration and if they can kind of tolerate their bite, which a lot of animals are really tough. They'll get bitten and they just keep going. You know, humans, we're kind of wusses a little bit. We we get bitten, we're like, owie, I'm just going to run away from that.
0: <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah,
1: meerkats will get stung by scorpions over and over again and they just keep going for them.
0: Do you think that for the meerkats, maybe it's something like what humans experience when we eat spicy food, (laughs) when we're like... Oh man, it hurts so good. I love the pain. Like, dial it up. Oh like, my
1: God, maybe. <laughs> Thrill seeking meerkats.
0: <laughs> they just like crave the spice. <laughs> Cause that's like, you know, in plants, that like capsaicin that they're producing is supposed to be like, stop eating me. Yeah. <laughs> and humans are like, ooh, delicious.
1: <laughs> maybe. And you know what? Maybe these guys even taste a little bit sour or spicy because of their like acid that they have. So just to go on a little bit of a tangent. uh, (laughs) Ants, for instance, by the way, all ants are edible. You can just eat any ant. Maybe don't eat it alive because it can sting you, but ants are supposed to have a little bit of a sour flavor. And that's because they also have acid in their stinger that's on their rear end. And so that gives them that kind of flavor. And a lot of people actually like it. Like people eat insects in a lot of countries. and in the future, we're all going to be doing it. But for now, it's kind of restricted. It's actually like more than seventy percent of countries in the world. We're really most the- people
0: eat <laughs> eat bugs, and we're the ones that are like, ew.
1: Yeah, and then we go and eat a lobster,
0: which is the same thing,
1: <laughs> just bigger.
0: <laughs> it's big and wet. What's the difference? Yeah.
1: So yeah, that's kind of an interesting tangent. So maybe these guys have that kind of flavor too. Who knows?
0: It's a defense mechanism that has actually backfired. Yeah. <laughs> Makes them tastier.
1: But there's a reason that you don't really see huge insects. Like There are a few that can get maybe a foot long, and that's really impressive. But most insects and in other arthropods tend to be small. And the reason for that is because they are limited in their how big they can get due to the way that they breathe. So insects and other arthropods, um, I'm not going to talk about crustaceans because that's a whole other ball game. They're underwater. <laughs> We're talking about on land. But they generally breathe through a series of tubes that go throughout their whole body. So they don't have lungs, these like specialized organs, these big sacs in their body that can inflate and deflate to bring oxygen in and out. Insects do it a little bit more inactively. They just have all of these tubes that connect to the outside and the air basically just passes through. So they're using diffusion to breathe, and they're not really actively pumping the air, which means that they're limited by how much oxygen is available. So the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere determines how big insects can get because they're using diffusion and not actively pumping air. And so if you go back in time to when insects kind of first appeared during the Cambrian period, you see these huge insects like dragonflies that had a two foot wingspan. There was a millipede that was so big, it could stand up to look a six foot tall person in the eye and just huge. And like spiders that were bigger than dinner plates. Um, (laughs) And, The reason for that is because there was a lot more oxygen in the atmosphere at that time. And then since the oxygen content went down, insects decreased in size. So it really is something they're not doing. I mean, evolution isn't something you do by choice, but you know Mm -hmm. what I mean. It's not something they're doing by choice as being small. They're kind of forced to be small.
0: They're kind of making the most of the hand that they've been dealt.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I didn't want to deduct a lot of points because there are benefits to being small as well. So I don't really consider that a huge drawback. However they're also not the best flyers. So I mentioned this earlier, and this is kind of partly because of that front pair of wings being half hardened, they kind of get in the way and they're not able to fly quite as well as say something like a fly or a dragonfly or a bee, which are really active flyers and very good at that. Um, So if they're escaping a predator, the predator still has a chance to catch it even while it's in flight. They're also not the best at walking, <laughs> so...
0: I was gonna ask this, because I'm thinking about the one that I saw, and it was very slow. And I was thinking, yeah. I was like, are you just slow because you think everything's fine and you don't know that I'm here? Or I was wondering, like, are you always this slow?
1: You know, it's a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. <laughs> so they're not... They don't really run. Like, they never run. Like, cockroaches are great runners... Tiger beetles are the fastest runners in the world. They run so fast that the world is a blur to them. And a tiger beetle, when it's hunting, has to run, stop, and look around, see where it is, run, stop, and look around, because they can't (laughs) see while they're running. So there are some insects that are amazing runners, and this is not one of them. They tend to be slow. Now, that slowness does help them, because it can help them camouflage, if they're employing camouflage, it can help them sneak up on prey, or maybe avoid predators, but... If a predator does see them, that's pretty much it. You know, they're, they're resorting to their chemical defenses, rather, of biting them um, if they get caught. Uh, they are able to still walk up glass walls like a lot of insects can. So, you know, that's still pretty impressive. In vertebrates, we pretty much just have geckos, and that's about it, uh, that can do that. But in insects, a lot of them can walk up glass because of these little pads on their feet called pulvilli This is what enables a fly to land upside down on your ceiling. Have you ever been in bed staring at a fly on the ceiling (laughs) thinking, how the heck are you (laughs) staying up there?
0: Like, what are you holding on to?
1: (laughs) Yes. And it's because of these kind of pads on their feet that work through like microscopic, I think they're like molecular forces that Mm -hmm. are in play here. So, you know, they're not great at flying. They're not great at running. They're kind of small. And the other thing that I kind of deducted them a point for, they don't have the best eyesight compared to some other small, you know, insects or jumping spiders, for instance, have amazing eyesight. And, you know, like dragonflies and flies also have very good eyesight. Those more active flying insects, bees too. Theirs is not amazing. It's not bad for an insect, but it's also not as great as it could be compared to some other ones.
0: It sounded to me like based on what you said earlier, they're also like not relying exclusively on their eyesight to get around. So like they're kind of like using other senses to navigate to. So maybe they don't have to like solely rely on their eyesight. Like humans largely have to rely pretty heavily on their eyesight. But it sounds like they're using other means of perceiving.
1: Absolutely. So they're very good at smelling uh, using their antennae. They can, you know, detect vibrations on the substrate. Uh, So if something is moving around near them, they can, they're not hearing it, they're kind of feeling it, um, which when you're hearing, you're really just feeling vibrations in the air with specialized organs in your ears. So hearing and feeling vibrations are very similar, but they, yeah, so they'll primarily kind of find their prey by smell and then use their eyesight when they're already close to it. However, eyesight can always be useful. Never hurts to have a great set of eyes on you, right? Especially (laughs) for evading predators, I think would be kind of the best uh, way, Uh, you know. But these guys have a defense if they do ever get caught. So they're not helpless by any means.
0: Some notes, but still high scoring. Yeah,
1: still a very effective insect, but they're not, you know, the most amazing kind of epitome of what every insect should live up to. Uh, They have areas for improvement as well.
0: Don't we all? (laughs) Hey there, we are going to take a quick break to hear from a couple of the other shows on the Maximum Fun Network. When we get back, we are going to talk about the mind-blowing ingenuity and quirky yet uniquely charming aesthetics for the assassin bugs. So stick around, you're not going to want to miss it.
1: Hi, I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalin. And the three of us host The Flop House. It's a podcast where we watch a new bad movie and then we talk about it. Dan, you say it's hosted by the three of us, we've had a lot of great guest co-hosts like Gillian Flynn, Jamel Bowie, John Hodgman, Jessica Williams, Wyatt Snack, Joe Bob Briggs, Josh Gondelman, Roman Mars. Yeah, and you said new movies, but what about the time we did Meatballs 2? Okay, okay, yeah, sometimes we do older movies and sometimes we have guests, but mostly it's about us talking about like recent bad movies. And don't forget about the the ones where I made you do a role-playing game where you played cartoon dogs. All right, yeah. But- Shouldn't a promo be a really simple explanation about what our show is about? So what's the show about, Dan? What's it about? <laughs> what's it about? It's about friendship, all right? It's about our friendship and how we love each other. The Flophouse. It's a podcast mostly about bad movies on Maximum Fun. Do you sometimes wonder whatever happened to the kids at your school who really loved Star Trek? You might remember a kid like me, the one who read the Star Trek novels and built starship models. I also took music classes to avoid taking gym classes that required showering after, but I don't see what that really has to do with- Or a kid like me. I introduced myself to kids at my summer camp one year as Wesley, but when the school year started and some of those kids were in my new class, I actually had to explain to my friends that I had tried to take on the identity of my favorite Star Trek character. The shame haunts me to this day. I'm sure some of those Star Trek fans from your childhood grew up to have interesting and productive lives, but we ended up being podcasters. On The Greatest Discovery, you'll hear what happens to two lifelong Star Trek fans who didn't grow up to be great people, they just grew up to be people who love jokes as much as they love Trek. So listen to our new episodes every week on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So I wanna talk a little bit about what they're doing with their incredibly effective body. Uh, the next category we rate animals on is ingenuity. This is behavioral adaptations. These are things that they're actually like actively doing in ways that they're behaving that help them like solve problems they encounter or get an edge and compete with other species or just survive and make it through the day. What do you give assassin bugs out of 10 for ingenuity?
1: So this is actually the reason I wanted to talk to you about assassin bugs, because ingenuity is where they shine.
0: Really? And when you
1: think about insects, you don't typically think about insects as having a ton of complex behaviors or right. really impressive strategies, but assassin bugs are just amazing. So I this one was an easy one for me to score them. 10 out of 10, absolutely no question. They are ingenious.
0: Really? I didn't know this. Whatever you're about to tell me is a surprise.
1: I have so much to tell you about this. So (laughs) I'll talk a little bit first about their camouflage again. So a lot of them will actually ambush their prey. Specifically, there's a whole subfamily called the ambush bugs where that's what they do. They just sit and wait for prey to come by and then they ambush them and attack them. So because they need to do this, they're very good at camouflage, very stealthy. This is typically the nymphs that will camouflage themselves by kind of covering themselves in debris. There's one species that covers itself in dust and lives more in like uh, urban environments. And so it covers itself in dust and it just looks like a clump of dust. And you wouldn't even know it was an insect until you saw it moving around. Right.
0: I'm not going around inspecting every clump of dust I see.
1: Yeah. So... The fact that they can, you know, cover themselves with whatever's in their environment, I think definitely uh, is pretty intelligent of them. They're not just relying on what they look like, but they can change their appearance in that way. And other species, so there's some that will actually cover themselves in the corpses of their prey. What? When they digest their prey, the prey is insects most of the time or other arthropods. And so they're left with this hard exoskeleton this husk of the body that's left behind. And what they'll do is they'll stick that onto their own bodies and this enables them to camouflage their scent. So a lot of insects navigate the world through scent. And so by covering themselves in the scent of their prey, they can sneak up on their prey without ever being detected. Huh. You, you might have mixed feelings about this.
0: This is absolutely like medieval warlord behavior of like... <laughs> like covering yourself in like the discarded skeletons of your enemies <laughs> wearing them around this is unhinged <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's not just you know a trophy it's actually serving a function right and so for instance there's one species that specializes on ants ants don't have amazing eyesight for the most part they're really really good at smelling their way around the world though and so Uh, An assassin bug would have no hope of getting close to an ant. They would be smelled right away. But this one will specialize on ants and it will cover itself with ants. And so it just smells like ants and the ants will come right up to it. And Uh, then it just eats them.
0: Oh my gosh. (laughs) This is an interesting thing that I think I talked about when we talked about ants, which is like the ant individually is about the dumbest thing (laughs) on this planet like ants as a group are capable of just like the most incredible feats of engineering and like the most genius brilliant civic engineering at a massive scale but then you look at an individual ant and an individual ant will see like a giant sentient clump of dead ants crawling towards it and be like oh yeah absolutely big hug bring it in my friend
1: yeah friends yeah
0: (laughs) those are my buddies (laughs) All clumped together the way they always are.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, I think that's kind of a really neat way that they're not just camouflaging visually, but even they're camouflaging their scent as well. And this camouflage, this kind of coat of whether it's debris or the, you know, bodies of their victims.
0: The slain remains of their enemies. (laughs) Yeah.
1: It also doubles as protection, because say a lizard is attacking it you know a lot of lizards will catch things using their tongue they might actually bite the or just stick their tongue onto this kind of armor that they've put on their bodies and then they just get a mouthful of that and the insect is left there and can walk away
0: wow it sounds like this one like behavior that they're doing serves them in many ways
1: absolutely and They have a lot of other really neat behaviors too. So there's one uh, that I came across that I thought was really interesting. It's worth mentioning. Uh, It's the feather-legged assassin bug. Uh, I'm gonna try to pronounce this scientific name. nemus lemurum. So this is an ant specialist, kind of like that other one where they'll camouflage themselves with uh, the corpses of the ants. These guys have a different strategy they actually produce a pheromone from a special gland on their underside. The gland is called the trichome and they produce this pheromone that attracts ants. So the ants aren't just smelling, you know, dead bodies of their friends. It's actually attractive. They're like, ooh, what is that smell? A perfume. (laughs) Yeah, and the ants walk right towards it so that bug doesn't even have to move. Its prey comes to it. And what's interesting is the ant will walk underneath it towards the scent because that's where the scent is coming from. And it's called feather-legged because its legs have all these hairs coming off of them.
0: I was Googling a picture while you were saying the um, scientific name, and they do have beautiful fluffy leg warmers. Yeah. It's very 80s. And
1: those leg warmers actually serve a function. So when the ant gets underneath there, the ant will probably realize something ain't right. And it will bite (laughs) onto those tufts of hair on their legs. But it's just tufts of hair. And so it doesn't hurt the the assassin bug at all. And when it's biting onto those tufts of hair on those hind legs, the assassin bug has the perfect angle to <gasps> pierce the delicate skin behind the ant's head in the kind of neck area.
0: It was a trap all along.
1: It was a trap. And not just getting you into the trap, but getting you into the position where it can most effectively eat you.
0: Oh, that's true. Like, having the tufts of hair towards the back of the bug's body means that the ant has to turn around and, like, expose its weak point to you. Like, the big glowing red weak spot on the boss that you're fighting is now, like, facing you.
1: Exactly. So, not all of these assassin bugs will use some debris for camouflage. For instance, the adults don't. Like I said, they rely more on that warning coloration. Some of them, however, do camouflage in a different way, including the adults, where they are, their bodies are even more elongate and they kind of look like sticks. Um, Or maybe blades of grass. And that's because they live kind of in the grass or on these kind of areas where they'll be hanging out on sticks. And so they can also camouflage that way. So they have multiple kind of ways to camouflage. Now, this camouflage isn't just visual. It's also behavioral. So they, when they walk, if they're trying to sneak up on prey... Or if they're trying to avoid a predator, they'll actually walk kind of like they're doing a dance. Stick bugs will do this too, kind of like a piece of leaf blowing in the wind where they're not walking directly straight. They'll kind of go swinging back and forth, just like as if the wind was blowing, you know, a piece of debris or a a leaf or something.
0: It's performance art is what it
1: is. Absolutely. They can also uh, produce sounds. So a lot of insects are not able to produce sounds, you know, crickets are and and some other ones too. Um, But these guys, they can actually use their proboscis and rub it along this kind of area on their sternum on their underside. And it'll create a sound. The sound is called stridulation. It's the same way crickets and grasshoppers produce sound. So the best way to kind of describe this is if you take like a comb for your hair and you put your finger and rub it down, it'll make a sound. Ah, sure. That sound is stridulation. And that sound can startle predators. So if you pick it up and suddenly it starts like making this kind of, you know, squeaking, (laughs) scary sound, you're like, whoa, whoa, what was that? And you might be scared enough that you drop it.
0: I absolutely would. (laughs) Right? That would work on me instantly. (laughs) No hesitation.
1: (laughs) It works on things like birds as well. They have other behaviors that they can use as a defense mechanism. So some of them will actually play dead. So when they get scared, they'll just go on their backs and stiffen their bodies and just play dead. This works depending on the predator. So uh, studies have shown that spiders only accept moving prey. So it works well against spiders. A lot of birds will only eat like live prey because you know if it's dead, maybe it died of a disease. Maybe it's just like really dry and there's not a lot of nutrients in there. You don't really know what you're getting when you're eating something that's been dead. Um, and so, a lot of predators will avoid dead things. And so, that's why you'll see a lot of animals playing dead. And this is one of them. So, the wheel bugs, the one that you found in your yard. So, to describe them, they're called a wheel bug because they have kind of, it looks like half of a wheel coming out of their back. It's kind of like a fin.
0: Yeah, with these like spokes sticking out of it.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it actually serves a function. Maybe it does, and I, I'm just not aware of it. But uh, they produce a really foul smell. This smell is produced by isobutyric acid. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because butyric acid is something similar. That's produced during decomposition of a body. So they basically smell like a rotting body. And it's such a pungent smell that it makes you just want to run the other way.
0: Once again, that would work on me instantly. (laughs) Yeah. I'm really glad I didn't bother that bug because then that smell would have been stuck on
1: our porch. (laughs) (laughs) So this could be really effective against something like a rodent, right? Where they have a super strong sense of smell. It could just overwhelm their noses and they're they're just not even going to want to bother that bug. And the, the final way they kind of avoid predators is just by sheltering in cracks during the daytime. So they're very aware of, you know, am I exposed? Am I not exposed? And they will kind of hide in cracks during the daytime. So I think it takes a certain amount of like self-awareness to know yeah. to hide And they have some interesting hunting strategies as well. So I already kind of touched on um, a couple specific ones. There's another one called a termite assassin bug, and it specializes on termites, not ants. Termites are not related to ants. They're actually closely related to cockroaches. Um, But they also live in these big colonies with a queen, just like an ant does. So that's lots of food if you're able to get it. So what these guys will do is they'll actually stand at an opening to the termite nest. There's lots of little holes on the nest. And they'll stand at one of these holes and just stick their proboscis in. The termites will come out and try to fight off the intruder. But as they come out, they're just getting bitten and killed. So literally, they come out to fight this guy. And it's a specialist that's just immediately killing them as they they approach.
0: He's spawn camping. It's not
1: fair, you know, it's it's not fair for the termites. It is really rude. You don't do that if you're playing a video game or you're an assassin bug in the real world. It's just not a fair strategy, but you know what? It works, so they do
0: it. It's poor sportsmanship. Poor sportsmanship,
1: absolutely. Um, and what's funny is that the dead bodies of the termites, well, the worker termites will be like, oh, gotta clean up these dead. And so they'll come and try to clean them up and then they just get killed too. Oh no, it's a cascading issue. Absolutely. And this the assassin bug can just sit at the same kind of opening for more than an hour, while more and more workers come to clean up the empty shells of their dead colleagues from the (laughs) tunnel below and then just, you know, get to the same fate.
0: As diabolical as this is, that is a brilliant strategy, because this bug has like, minimized the amount of effort it needs to put in and maximized the amount of payoff.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And it does that in other ways as well. So another way that requires minimal effort, there's some species that will eat spiders. You have to be a pretty good predator to eat another predator that's like the same size as you, right? And so what they'll do is they'll actually go to the web of a spider and stand at the edge and pluck the web to (gasps) mimic the vibrations of a prey item caught in the web. Then the spider will come closer thinking there's prey over here, got to attack it. And then they come within range of their proboscis and they bite the spider and, and will kill it. Now, the spiders are also predators. So if the spider is too fast, the tables may turn and they can actually become the prey.
0: Ooh, high risk, high reward.
1: Yes, <laughs> but also very uh, low energy cost. So this is something that's not just done by assassin bugs. There's a species of jumping spider called Porsche spider that also does this. It's called aggressive mimicry, where they're mimicking the vibration of an insect, but they're using it to capture their prey.
0: That is wild to me because I feel like it requires so much understanding on the bugs part to be like, I know what you're expecting. I know what you want to happen. So I'm going to imitate the thing you're expecting so that then I will have the advantage of you. Like, I feel like that just requires such a high level of like analytical understanding of the world around you and your adversary. I suppose it's
1: just like mind blowing that it comes from a, a little bug. And these, these bugs that are doing this, it's not like they only hunt spiders. This is a special technique that they use for this specific prey item. They'll use other techniques for different prey items. So they can, you know, identify what their prey is, what technique to use when they do that. So there's some thought processes going on in there. Hemipterans as a whole, Hemipterans, by the way, are called true bugs. And many of these true bugs, the Hemiptera, they will secrete a sticky substance to glue their eggs onto a plant. So your eggs aren't just falling all over the place. And that's typically kind of the extent of the parental care. But assassin bugs don't produce the sticky substance. It might be because their diet does not include plants. And so maybe they're just not able to make it. So instead, what they do is they will cover their eggs with a sticky resin from a tree. So they can't produce the sticky substance themselves. So they go to a tree and get that instead. Mm,
0: Interesting. So they, they know they need it. But they also are like, well, I don't have it. So I'm going to have to go find it.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like using
0: their behavior to make up for something they don't have built in.
1: Totally. And they'll cover their eggs with this kind of sticky resin. So, you know, the eggs are kind of adhered to the plant. But also, more importantly, the eggs are actually protected from ants and parasitoid wasps. So wasps that are looking to lay their eggs inside another insect or inside another insect's eggs um, are called parasitoid wasps. And that's some of their kind of major predators, especially in the egg stage. It's often ants or parasitoid wasps because the eggs can't do anything. They're just stuck there. They don't move, right? And so this tree resin kind of provides a protective coating. And it also has chemicals that the tree has produced that might be unpalatable to the ants. I thought that was pretty neat that they are finding things in their environment and using those for their own benefit in more ways than just one they seem
0: quite industrious, yeah based on the fact like they're doing that for their eggs, but they're also like finding things in their environment to stick on their bodies and stuff like it just seems like they're very like in tune with their surroundings and like using what's around them to their
1: advantage absolutely and so another one that also uses tree resin this is called the I think it's called the bee assassin bug. And it will actually, so tree resin is sweet. It has kind of a sweet, sugary smell, and that's really attractive to bees. So it'll get a bunch of this resin on its body and just wait for bees to come, thinking that it's, you know, bees will also drink resin. They don't just drink nectar. So it lures in bees that way, and then it will kill the bees as well. Um, That's only this kind of one type, but I thought that was pretty neat.
0: They seem really good at, like, baiting traps. Yeah. Like, it, it seems like they're really good at, like, understanding what they need to do to, like, entice their
1: prey. You just see so many different examples of it that individual species develop these behaviors separately. And I, I just think they're absolutely ingenious. One that I've kind of noticed working with them at the Royal Alberta Museum is is that even though they are fierce predators, they can live together without killing each other. So they don't live in colonies per se, but if you keep them together, they won't attack each other. Now you don't see this with things like spiders. Spiders will typically cannibalize each other. Same with mantises. You keep a cage of mantises, you're only going to end up with maybe one or two.
0: The strongest mantis. (laughs) Yeah, the strongest mantis survives. You're going to have one champion.
1: They live much more as a family. And so obviously if they're starved, They will begin to attack each other, but as long as they have a food source, they're not super territorial or anything. So I think that's kind of nice that they can tolerate each other and live together with members of their own species.
0: Game recognizes game.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So if it was another species, they would probably attack it. But the fact that they can kind of recognize their own species and say, you know what, I'm going to leave that one alone and that will lead to, you know, more success for their species, right? The final thing, I know that this is something you like to talk about on your podcast, is parental care. Most Hemipterans don't have any parental care. They'll lay their eggs and then they just walk away and leave. Um, And a lot of assassin bugs do something called egg guarding, which is exactly what it sounds like. They will stand and watch over their eggs and guard them. There are some species where it's actually the males that do the egg guarding. So a nice little role reversal in the animal kingdom. Good for him. Yeah, being a good dad. Good
0: job, dad.
1: Yeah, so in this, in these ones, the females will only guard the eggs if there's no male present, which is nice that they have kind of a backup plan, like, okay, the boy's not here, maybe he got killed, um, and so the female will actually stand guard over her eggs in that case. There's also some where both guard the eggs together, and in the ones where the male is guarding the eggs, the females actually have a preference for males that are already guarding some eggs, so they know this is a good dad. (gasps) He is reliable. I'm going to mate with this one and I know he'll guard my eggs.
0: All right. They got dad energy.
1: <laughs> yeah. So they're they're a little bit pickier. Not just mating with the first one they see.
0: Right. But enough to think like, well, I know that you've had babies. So like you might be like you're an experienced father. Um, yeah. Interesting.
1: They're not looking for monogamy. They're just looking for a capable father.
0: Right.
1: He's allowed to have other girlfriends. So that's my points for ingenuity. I think it warrants a 10 out of 10.
0: Based on everything that you've told me, it sounds like they're just really very situationally aware, like Mm -hmm. very in tune with what's going on around them. Is that consistent with your experience working with them where they seem like they're like responsive to their surroundings or seem very like aware of what's going on around them?
1: So it's hard to say because they live in such a different world, right? They're so small that to them, what's important is things more around their size, right? Other than occasional giant predators, the way they need to navigate the world is completely different than the way we do. So even though they may not be super aware of my presence there, because they don't have amazing eyesight, and that's typically the first way they'll kind of see you. But if you like breathe on them or something, they know you're there, they can feel it but they're still very aware of what they need to know. You know, if you ever hold like a praying mantis, a praying mantis will look you right in the eyes. Same with jumping spiders. If you ever get close to one, they will look you right in the eyes. Like they can see your face. They know where your, you know, soul is. They look Mm -hmm. right into you. And that I feel like you just immediately think, wow, this is like an intelligent being. And because they don't really have that, I think humans don't see it as much we don't understand what they're smelling, what they're feeling, and how they're interpreting the world. We just don't see that same visual reaction that we see with some other animals. And so it's easy to kind of discount them. But when you really learn more about these complex behaviors, you realize there's more going on in that head than you can really notice.
0: Right. Just not something that registers to the human as something that's familiar to us.
1: Exactly. I think we're so biased with what we think is smart. And the way we interpret intelligence, where we really have to kind of begin opening our mind up to other types of intelligence and not discount something just because it's small and may not immediately seem intelligent. Once you study it a little bit more, you'll realize these things are capable of some really complex behaviors and they're making decisions. They're changing their behavior to adapt to their environment or to the prey item or to a predator.
0: I was going to ask you next, you know, like based on your time working with them, I feel like you probably have developed a, a very close relationship with some of the assassin bugs. You would be as the best person to evaluate this. What would you give them out of 10 for aesthetics?
1: Okay. So this is not where the assassin bug is doing its best. <laughs> Frankly, I think they're a little bit goofy looking. Fair. um, And not in, like, a pug way where you're like, oh, it's so ugly, it's cute. More of just like, that's just absurd. I don't... Why, why would you look like that? It's, so if you look up pictures of, like, their faces... They they have just these big bulgy eyes on the side of their head. Their big long proboscis looks like a big long like nose, just tucked underneath their body. It is
0: folded under in kind of a strange way.
1: It's just a funny looking thing. It's not the most visually appealing animal, especially compared to like some other insects like butterflies, where they have these beautiful patterns. A lot of beetles have like really pretty patterns, and even like kind of really cute faces. A lot of beetles too. Um, these guys, I think this is kind of where the category that they're not doing the best in. So I only gave them a five out of 10, which I know is a low score, but like, I am not one of the type of people that, you know, thinks insects are like creepy or weird. So I don't remove any points for that. But when I compare them to other insects, like butterflies, beetles, stick bugs, which like are also really, really cute. The the camouflage that they do isn't particularly pretty. Like some moths that camouflage, you look at them close up and you're like, oh, it's actually like a beautiful pattern. These guys, it's just dirt on their bodies, right? <laughs>
0: it's just dirt, so, which works well for them. It
1: works great.
0: It just doesn't look beautiful to humans and that's not their fault. That's an us thing.
1: Looks aren't everything, right?
0: They're not. <laughs> I will say I do love... The wheel bug. I think that the spokes on its back make it look like a stegosaurus. And like that's very successful for me.
1: That's a good point. I like that. I did give them points for being kind of cute and small. Like I think that and their kind of slow walk is kind of charming. They don't like skitter around like a cockroach. And I think cockroaches are cute too, but the way they skitter is maybe not the most appealing thing. Um so they're kind of cute the way they like walk and kind of stumble around. But That being said, when you compare them to other insects or other animals, they're definitely not a standout in terms of appearance. They have kind of some neat looks to them sometimes, but nothing too visually appealing.
0: It's a unique charm all their own. Yeah. We love them anyway.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I do have a few other kind of fun facts that don't fit into the other sections. Okay, So um, there's this really interesting relationship between assassin bugs and this plant called tarweed. And there's actually a video uh, made by Deep Look on YouTube that uh, documents this. And so basically the plant produces the sticky secretion that will lure in and trap flying insects. So the insects are like, ooh, this smells sweet and delicious. Let me fly onto this. And then they get stuck. And... All of these dead insects or freshly killed insects will lure in the assassin bugs so they can smell the dead ones and they can walk a little bit more freely on this plant. Their bodies are a little bit more raised up and so they're not getting stuck onto it. They can kind of walk a little bit more carefully and they will just eat all of these freshly killed insects. But once they're done, they'll actually move on that plant to eat the pests that are on that plant. So there's caterpillars that will feed on it that don't get bothered by the sticky secretions. And these assassin bugs will come and they'll kill all those caterpillars. So the plant is attracting predators like assassin bugs in order to take care of the pests that are on it. Mm. And they do it in a really roundabout way by attracting other insects to lure in the predators. So it's a really kind of weird... They've taken a lot of steps to achieve this end.
0: Right. It's like a circular, everybody's sort of benefiting off of each other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the caterpillars aren't benefiting too much. Uh, <laughs> since they're get, But they get, get to eat some plant.
0: That's true. <laughs> they get a meal out of it.
1: Yeah. Uh, another fun fact that I have is that their saliva, that kind of venomous digestive saliva, is being studied right now for use as a natural insecticide. So we're seeing if we can mimic the chemical compound and use it as an insecticide in uh, cropping systems
0: because
1: oh, it's effective against a lot of different pests.
0: That's really cool. I love good uh, biochemical engineering.
1: Yeah. One thing I have to mention about them. So this is the reason they get a bad reputation. So one is the fact that they can bite, but they are particularly kind of prejudiced against because there is a, a subfamily of them that can transmit diseases. So there's one subfamily within the family of assassin bugs called triatominae, and they are very unusual because they are blood suckers. No other members of the group does this. These guys find a big vertebrate host, a mammal or bird, and they'll suck out the blood from that host, which is usually not a really a big deal. Um, You know, maybe it's itchy or annoying, but not the end of the world. However, some of them can transmit diseases. So they will transmit a disease called Chagas disease, which is not a good disease. Um, It can cause death. Chagas disease kills about 10,000 people in the world every year, which is actually a really small number when you compare it to other diseases. Malaria, for instance, kills 600,000 people per year. And that's transmitted by mosquitoes. And so Chagas disease, while kind of a serious disease, if you do get it, it's not super prevalent. And it's really only transmitted by one subfamily. And they live in kind of the tropical area of Central and South America. Uh, They're not common and you won't really come across them in in the States very much. um, Certainly not up here in Canada. Uh, But that's the fact that they can transmit this this disease, humans are like, big no. Sure. Um, And so if you look up assassin bugs, a lot of the things you'll get is from pest control agencies that will say, assassin bugs transmit diseases. You don't want them in your home because they can transmit chagos disease. And it's like, no, it's really just this one type. And like 99.9% of assassin bugs are not doing that. Right. And even within this one subfamily, not all individuals will have that disease. But the reason I want to bring this up is because this is actually one of the theorized causes of death for Darwin. (gasps) As in Charles? Charles Darwin. Yeah. The man himself. There's lots of different kind of theories about why, how Darwin died. And this is one of them. So during one of his trips, um, according to his diaries and letters, he slept in these kind of rural houses and outdoors for about half a year in these areas that are hyper endemic for Chagas disease. So these specific areas where Chagas disease is, and that exposes them to him to these blood sucking uh, assassin bugs. They're actually called kissing bugs which I think is a much friendlier term. But the kiss is not something you want to... It's not something you want to get kissed by. The kiss of death. Yeah. <laughs> the disease is called by... It's a type of trypanosomiasis. So it's uh, trypanosomia cruzi, I think is the species name of the bacteria. And they actually wanted to test Darwin's remains for the DNA of this bacteria to see if that's how he died. But basically, the curator of the place where he's buried was like, no, we're not digging up his body so you can test it.
0: No fun. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So, uh, unfortunately, we'll probably never know how Darwin really died. But I just thought that was kind of a neat thing, an impact that they've made on history.
0: Mm, head headcanon accepted.
1: <laughs> the final thing I want to say about them is if you are interested in helping the insects in your area, um, including assassin bugs, which are great for your garden, like I said, 99.9% of them are completely harmless to humans, other than if you really, really kind of bother them and, and get a bite by them. And it's not a bite you need to worry about going to the hospital for or anything. It's just painful, But if you want to help the insects in your area, a great way to do this that's just super easy is to leave the leaves on the ground over the, if you have winter in your area or if you have a dry season, leaving the leaves on the ground during that season, a lot of insects will sleep in those leaves. And so um, by kind of just waiting until spring to clean up any fallen leaves from trees, You can uh, support all all populations of things like bees, ladybugs, and all sorts of really beneficial insects, even butterflies. Some of them will pupate in their little cocoons in the leaves. And so when you're cleaning up all these leaves, you're removing all of those insects. And that's kind of their main habitat when they're uh, sleeping over winter.
0: Be kind to your bug neighbors, your bug friends, treat them with respect because there's a lot more going on with them than may meet the eye at first.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: What a beautiful critter. Well, as we're wrapping up today, I would love it if you could let our friends listening know like what kind of projects are you involved with right now and where can people like follow you on social media and keep up with your work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, right now, I'm doing my master's in entomology at the University of Alberta. So my master's is a little bit less focused on the insects themselves and a little bit more focused on science communication. So my master's is looking at extension in agriculture in Alberta now what extension is, is basically the communication between researchers and scientists and the people that are actually using that research, which in the case of agriculture is the producers, the growers, the farmers. So I'm looking at kind of how we can better bridge that gap between the scientists and the producers, specifically in Alberta um, for agriculture. So it's, it's very kind of specific to my region, um, but that's what my project is about. As I mentioned before, I was also part of the Bugs 101 course project. So it's a massive open online course. You can take it on Coursera.org. That's C-O-U-R-S-E-R-A. So course and then uh, R-A.org. And Coursera is a fantastic platform where they have hundreds of free online courses made by universities around the world. So it's like university level quality of courses. absolutely free. You can also pay if you want to get a certificate to kind of show that you've done the course. But if you're just doing it for yourself, you don't have to pay. And it's a fantastic way to have this kind of higher level education uh, freely available for the world. So I think that's amazing. And I was one of the creators of the Bugs 101 course. So it's an introduction to insects. And their impacts on human societies. So we talk a lot about their biology and diversity and kind of the functions of their Uh, of insects in our ecosystem. And then we also talk about a lot of the different impacts that they have on humans. So whether that's in agriculture, in medicine, in even forensics, uh, insects are often used to help solve crimes. There's a whole field called forensic entomology. Mm. And so we talk a lot about that. And then also just like insects in our culture, how have they been kind of represented historically, artistically, and that kind of thing. So if you'd like to learn more about insects, Bugs 101 is a great place to start. Uh, and like I said, you can take it for free on Coursera.org. A lot of the um, illustrations I actually did myself. And then uh, a lot of the other ones we are, were done by a kind of a production company. So we did hire a production company for it. So it's very kind of high-end, high-quality course, which during COVID has been really, really useful.
0: Absolutely. I can provide links to all this stuff in the episode description too. So folks that are listening on a podcast, you can scroll down and click through the link.
1: Fantastic. I'm also involved a lot in science communication here in Alberta. So I do a lot of talks in public schools and libraries and kind of just do as much outreach as I can. I'm actually the outreach director for the Entomological Society of Alberta. So I try to do some outreach kind of as my role in that um, just last week. I actually ran an insect pinning and shadow boxing workshop. Wow. So one of the things I like to do is not just pin the insects, which a lot of entomologists do, but I like to put them in shadow boxes and arrange them with a bunch of natural materials to kind of highlight their beauty and not just have it, you know, an insect in a shadow box, but really showcase a lot more of nature. And maybe not what their specific habitat would look like, but just kind of... Trying to highlight their beauty a little bit more. And so you can see some of my art, uh, my shadow boxing art, and just my drawings as well on my Instagram, which is at crude underscore organism. And so, yeah, check me out. You can give me a follow. Feel free to message me if you have any questions about insects or anything. I'm always happy to reach out to Curious Minds.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your time and your knowledge. I got to say the probably about 99% of the stuff that you said was absolute news to me. So I feel like I learned a lot. And um, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your love of assassin bugs with us.
1: I am so grateful that you had me on this podcast. I love sharing my passion at any opportunity. And you know, maybe change some people's minds about the way that they feel about bugs in general.
0: Right. That's
1: always my goal.
0: I mean, learning is a great way to dismantle fear.
1: Absolutely. So
0: hopefully we've done some fear dismantling today.
1: And you know, when I get people coming to the bug gallery, parents with their kids, I notice it's always the parents that have that fear. It's not something that's inherent in our in our minds. It's something we learn from our environment, from, you know, The people around us, the community, and our overall society is like, you should be afraid of bugs. And it's. I think they really get thrown under the bus a little bit. Right. And uh, I think that if you do have a child that is curious about insects, and even if you are grossed out, don't show it to your kid. You know, you don't have to go and touch the bug, but don't be like, ew, icky, because then they're going to pick up on that, and that curiosity will disappear. Right. I see it all the time where a kid will look at a bug and then they look up at their parents to see how their parents are reacting right. in order to kind of gauge how they react. Yeah. And if you allow their own curiosity to shine through, I think that you can discover that maybe your kids have a passion for something that you didn't even know about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Give them a chance and you might find that you have that passion too. Give bugs a chance, I think is our tagline. I love it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Alan. It has been a delight. I've had such fun talking to you, and we will catch you later.
1: All right, thanks, Alan.
0: Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening, friends. I have found that a major way that making this podcast has impacted my life has been the improvement of my relationship with the bugs in my life through learning more about them so that I can understand and appreciate them better. So I really hope we've helped some of you out there find that joy today. If you liked what you heard, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a good rating and review on your podcatcher. We've actually had quite a few new good ratings on Apple Podcasts recently, and that means a lot to me me it really helps to know that folks out there are listening and enjoying we're also on facebook twitter instagram we have a discord server that's a lot of fun i also stream video games on twitch on thursday nights so link up with us on socials if you want to hang out virtually you can also send me an email at ellen at just the of us.com if you have a cool animal you'd like to hear about on the show We'd like to say thank you to Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside their other wonderful shows like the ones that you heard promos for here today. You can check them out and learn more about the network at MaximumFun.org. While you're there, please consider signing up for a membership to keep us going along with the rest of the shows on the network. Like I mentioned at the top, we're using that support to improve the show in really cool and exciting ways like bringing back transcripts. So we couldn't do that without y'all. And finally, we would like to thank Louis Zong for our just incredible theme music. That is all for today. See you next week. Thanks. Bye.